Homeowners are voters and homeowners expect the property they live in to go up in value. And that's the real issue, I think, in Australia and the UK and other countries which have a high proportion of homeowners. If you really want to address housing affordability, it's going to be very, very hard to do it unless house prices fall. The problem for a politician who says, I want to generate a situation where house prices are falling, they're unlikely to be elected. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and welcome to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. The great Australian dream of home ownership had its golden age just after the Second World War, and the level of home ownership increased rapidly in the 1950s and 60s. Tens of thousands of families are already comfortably housed. 15,000 new homes were built in the state last year, 85% of them by private enterprise. A record. By the beginning of the 1970s, just over 70% of all Australians own their own home. But Australia's surging house prices have made this dream unattainable for many Australians. And this is especially the case for low-income earners. Even though the overall home ownership rate has remained relatively stable, the level of home ownership in low-income and single-parent households has fallen significantly. The Economist magazine recently claimed that Australia's housing market is overvalued by more than 25%. Even accounting for higher incomes, Australia's house prices are now amongst the highest in the world. Next to a noisy cafe at the Australasian Housing Researchers Conference in Hobart, I spoke to Keith Jacobs about the politics of housing in Australia and the inequalities within the current housing system. What you've got at the moment is that most people think that people living in public housing are getting huge amounts of resources and benefits from the government. And you'll hear words like social scrounger or welfare or leaners and lifters and the people who are leaning are the people living in public housing. The people living in owner-occupied are lifters. They're the ones contributing to the economy. We are a nation of lifters, not leaners. What I think is actually happening is that many of the people who have no opportunity to actually generate wealth through living in either private rental or public housing are being disadvantaged through the tax system. So at the moment, the real debate should be around tax and fiscal redistribution. But the, for some reason, the debates in housing policy are very fixated on what I would call managerialism. And that's issues which are important, like addressing homelessness, improving the quality of stock, they're all important issues, but that's not the major problem at the moment. The real issue is inequality. It's inequality in the whole housing system, which basically renders pretty meaningless most of the interventions which we currently call housing policy. According to Keith Jacobs, this inequality has widened over the years due to taxation incentives for homeowners and rental investors. Homeowners pay no capital gains on the family home and their homes are also excluded from the pension asset test. Investors only pay 50% of the capital gains tax when they sell their rental property. And they can use negative gearing to offset any losses from their rental investments to reduce their overall tax burden. 
Such policies favour existing homeowners, since low-income earners generally do not have the capital or the income to enter Australia's expensive housing market. Australia has a dysfunctional housing system and the best way to describe it is a, a reverse form of welfareism in the sense that we normally associate welfare state with the redistribution from rich people to poor. But the housing system in Australia actually performs the reverse. It sets up mechanisms which effectively result in disadvantaged people becoming even more disadvantaged. It effectively sets up a situation where well-off people are able to accrue more wealth. And that's not on the basis of hard work. It's based on speculation. We have to be very real about this. We have to recognise words like speculation, debt. This is the real currency of the Australian housing system. There are a lot of people who will tell you the system works well for Australians, that the housing affordability crisis is all being addressed by developers and everything's moving in the right direction, that people are being impatient and if you take it a bit longer we'll be able to sort these problems. But I've been observing housing policy in the UK and in Australia over the last 30 years and I would honestly say the situation is far worse now than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago. Australia's housing system was markedly different 30 or 40 years ago. Median house prices were around the $20,000 mark. And indexed against average income, Australia had one of the more affordable housing markets in the world. Today, it is one of the most expensive. In the mid-1970s, the rates of home ownership across the different income groups were fairly similar. But now, there are more than 25% more homeowners in the highest income quartile compared to the lowest. And although the level of home ownership has been relatively stable for many decades, it's now starting to decline. And within the 24 to 44 year old bracket, the rates have started to fall more markedly. Most people think of housing policy as issues around social housing, public housing, but the real issue I think is actually the money which is set aside for the people who are already quite well housed, and that are the only occupied sector. The best way to think about the Australian housing system is to look at the actual money apportioned by the government. Uh, I think about $45 billion is actually provided to owner-occupiers through tax relief, what's called imputed tax subsidies, which is money which should be collected, which actually isn't collected. Um, there's about 5 or $6 billion set aside for public housing tenants. And there's also a huge amount of money being provided to rental investors. And we know over the last 20 or 30 years, more and more money is going through to that particular grouping, primarily through uh, what's known as negative gearing. Of the $45 billion in indirect assistance to own occupiers, it's estimated that the government foregoes almost $30 billion because of the capital gains tax exemption on the family home, and about $7 billion from not taxing inputted rent. And this doesn't even include the cost of the first home buyers grant. The Grattan Institute estimates that the benefit to rental investors through negative gearing and capital gains tax discounts is about $6.8 billion each year. Most people think that the government's there to address housing affordability, but what it's actually primarily doing is propping up house prices, encouraging investment in the, in the private rental market and the owner-occupied sector. And I think that's a conversation which hasn't really kind of come through. I think that most people are unaware just how much money is set aside for homeowners. Over to you, ladies and gentlemen. Can I see a start suggested at the quote? 2.2. 2. 
once again, first, second, Part of the problem is that a strong housing market is often associated with a strong economy. And this housing market can generate a lot of money for the states and territories. But Keith Jacobs says this association between high house prices and a strong economy is misleading. Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a very kind of similar trajectory to what's happening in other countries like the UK and the US. Governments in countries like that are basically doing the same thing. They're encouraging speculative investment in housing because in a sense, that's a good thing for the government. They like the idea of foreign investment into Australia, foreign investment in the UK. But let's just try and unpick this a bit more, Dallas, and look at countries where there isn't such huge benefits for any occupiers. And I'm thinking here of Germany, for example. Germany has one of the lowest rates of home ownership amongst developing countries. Only 41% of Germans own their own home, compared to countries like Australia, the US and the UK, who have home ownership rates in the high 60s. And economically troubled countries such as Spain, Ireland and Greece have amongst the highest level of home ownership in the OECD, between 70 and 80%. Would you say that the German economy has been a disaster? No, you wouldn't. But would you say that the UK economy is sluggish? Yes, I would. So the assumption that simply high prices is good for the economy is probably a false one. I'd probably actually go further and say, if you think about it, if everyone is locked into debt, private debt, their capacity to actually spend on goods and services is severely curtailed, particularly if interest rates go up. So we're at very, very risk here in Australia. Everyone is maxed out on debts. Interest rates are low at the moment, but should interest rates go up and inflation to kick off, then many people would be overreaching and their spending would stall. And very, very quickly, the Australian economy would grind to a halt. So high prices is not good. It locks people into paying off debts when really they could be much more productive with their income and actually go around buying goods and services made in Australia. And that would have a far better effect for the Australian economy. That's my view. I'd, I've yet to be convinced that high house prices actually is good for the Australian economy. A recent study by the financial institution Barclays found that Australian households are amongst the most indebted in the world. While many Australians live in their own homes, the number who own their own home outright has fallen since 1996, from about 40% to about 32% and Australia's household debt per person is higher than at any other time in the last 25 years. And as house prices surge upwards, household debt is likely to increase further. Keith Jacobs says the difficulty with addressing rising house prices and housing inequality is related to the number of Australians who own real estate. Homeowners don't want their property values to decline and being the majority, they form a powerful, albeit informal, lobby group. Homeowners are voters, and homeowners expect the property they live in to go up in value. Um, they don't like to see the value of their home go down. And that's the real issue, I think, in Australia and the UK and other countries, which have a high proportion of homeowners. Uh, in their nation is simply this, that if you really want to address housing affordability, it's going to be very, very hard to do it unless house prices fall. The problem for a politician who says, I want to generate a situation where house prices are falling, they're unlikely to be elected. So you've got a huge problem for the political class, because I think most people recognise that the housing affordability issue is not going to be addressed in the current system, but it's very difficult electorally to win 
government if you try and address the housing affordability in a way which is actually meaningful. So we have a bit of a charade, I think, in the way that politics and housing is discussed in Australia. But it's not just homeowners who are influencing housing policy. Keith Jacobs says that there are other influential groups who lobby for the status quo and thereby undermine attempts to address housing inequality. You've also got a hugely powerful lobby, what I would call the finance industry, who make money out of basically lending money to people and mainly homeowners. So they expect people to borrow more and more money and they're quite happy to see house prices rise. The higher the price, the more people borrow, the bigger the profits. Financial services firm UBS estimates that banks make approximately $80,000 profit from each home loan over the course of that loan. In 2014, banks provided more than 600,000 home loans. Only around 90,000 of those were first home buyer loans. Then you've got a very, very powerful development industry here. Now the development industry are quite interesting. They will say they want to address housing affordability, but we all know that their profits again are generated by having land which is worth huge amounts of money and making sure that the land they own basically accrues wealth for them. So they have no real interest, I don't think, in addressing housing affordability. Um, they would rather see house prices rise. Um, they don't really want to see too much investment in public housing because that in a way would take away from people who want to live in owner occupation. Uh, you've also got the building industry. The building industry want to make big, big profits. And the best way to make big profits is in home ownership at the luxury end. They're not really that keen on providing resources at the affordable housing sector. Um, because the profit margins are far less. So you've got a huge number of groups here who are quite happy with the status quo. The real allure, the attraction of owner-occupation is the poor private rental sector and the poor social housing sector. If the social housing sector was very, very good, a lot of people wouldn't choose to buy a property. So I'm not suggesting conspiracy, but I don't think it's in the interests of the finance industry and the bankers to see a buoyant social housing sector in Australia. That sounds controversial, but I, that's the way I see it. Mary, you coming in to tea? No, Mary is not coming in to tea just yet. She and Ted have a problem. The same problem that faces almost every couple who want to marry. Where are they going to live? That's the burning question the problem facing thousands living in substandard houses or sharing with other families. No home in which to begin their domestic life. The number of public housing dwellings being built has steadily declined over the past few decades, coinciding with a reduction in Commonwealth funding for the sector. The first step towards a more equitable housing system is to remove the tax breaks for homeowners and investors, says Keith Jacobs. He says the real issue that needs addressing is housing inequality. He wants to see a neutral housing taxation system so that no one is advantaged or disadvantaged. Well, I think the first thing you have to do is really address the fiscal system, the taxation system, and look at all the benefits which currently accrue to homeowners and the rental investors. And I'm not just saying that there's going to be a perfect solution here, but what we really have to do is create a level playing field. So no one is advantaged or disadvantaged based on where they are, where their tenure is. At the moment, we know that public housing tenants are disadvantaged on the basis of living in public housing. They have no access to capital. They cannot make profits from living in public housing. Same is true for private renters. They have no opportunity 
whatsoever to accrue wealth based on where they're living. They're paying rent. The people who are currently able to do that are two groupings. There are existing homeowners who, if house prices go up, they're able to keep the proceeds because they're not taxed on their home. And also rental investors who are able to keep the proceeds of their profit through a negative gearing mechanism. You've got to address that. You've got to be able to create a more neutral situation where those huge benefits which go to already existing well-off people are somehow redistributed back to people who are disadvantaged. Um, there are a number of practical ways you can do it. It can't be done overnight, but you could probably just grandstand. What I mean by that is you could probably just limit negative gearing initially just to new build properties. Um, you could probably start imposing capital gains tax on profits. You could provide more resources to public housing, state housing authorities to actually invest in social housing. Investing in social housing would actually reduce house prices if there was sufficient amount. That's why it's being opposed. The key debate which I think needs to be addressed in Australia is looking at the, as I said, the interest groups and the way in which groupings are aligned in particular ways to actually ensure the status quo maintains. Uh, huge amounts of money is being made out of housing in Australia and it's primarily through people's debt. Um, I don't think the debate at the moment is actually on that issue. I think people have got caught up in what I would call managerialism or administrative reforms and there's a kind of fantasy going on in the place of mainly the government that if you can tinker with the system by perhaps providing a few regeneration programs on housing estates in Sydney and Melbourne or providing a few more shelters to people who are homeless or encouraging tenants to participate on the management of their state that all these problems which we would call housing affordability are going to be addressed. It's not. If you look historically at the two times really when there's been major change in housing and there's been a more equal system, it's probably been after the First World War in the UK and for a short period after the Second World War. And there was a different alignment of class interests, I think, which actually gave more power to trade unions, more people actually in this active in the space promoting public housing. And there was, an, there was a recognition within the political parties that there had to be something done about housing. I don't see that at the moment. In the UK, even though the councils had the power to build houses, it wasn't until after the First World War that public housing became a focus. The acute shortage of housing after the war, coupled with the high cost and shortage of materials, prompted the UK government to provide housing for returned soldiers. After the initial shortage was addressed, local councils then tackled the problem of its existing so-called slum housing. Australia also had a chronic housing shortage after the Second World War, and many public housing programs were initiated to house returned soldiers and their families. To implement a similar program today, major changes in the housing sector would require bipartisan support, says Keith Jacobs. My ultimate feeling, if one's going to address this, is that the politicians on both sides are not going to do it on their own. There's too many vested interests. What I'd like to see is probably some kind of commitment in advance from both political parties, that is the Coalition and the Labour Party, to actually agree to accept the findings of a Royal Commission, which actually could look at this in totality. But that's a very hard ask because, as we know, politicians basically get elected by the majority of people in Australia and the majority are homeowners. So we've got a tough call here, but I think it can happen. And I'm encouraged by the historical situation where I think in the past, you know, there have been huge kind of shifts in, in kind of the way people consider social problems. So there are grounds to be optimistic, but it's not going to happen overnight, that's for sure. Mm -hmm.
Keith Jacobs, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. And if you like this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes.